0: Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's, very, it's a very interesting and uh, unusual and weird experience for me to be, be talking um, in my hometown, which is uh, <laughs> um, Now, amongst the, uh, the, 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 the books that Constance uh, mentioned when she was introducing me, um, Hitchhiker's Guide, Dirk Gently, and so on, was not my favorite book. And my favorite book is what I'm here to talk about tonight. Uh, it's funny how, how um, how often, virtually every author I know, their own favorite book is the one uh, that sold the least. It somehow sold, it's, it's the runt of the litter. It's, it's the one you always just sort of love the most. And I want to tell you about how this came about. Um, sometime in about the mid-1980s, the phone rang. <laughs> and the voice said... We want you to go to Madagascar. We want you to look for a very rare form of lemur, called the aye-aye. The plane leaves in two weeks. We'd like you to be on it. Now, I, assuming they got the wrong number, said yes before they could discover their mistake. (laughs) Um, But in fact, it turned out that they decided, um, well, Here's somebody who doesn't know anything about lemurs, anything about the eye anything about Madagascar. Let's send him. <laughs> and um, so I started to try and find out something about it. And it turns out it's very interesting. Um, um, lemurs used to be the dominant primate in all the world. And they were very, very gentle, pleasant creatures. They were a little bit like sort of, about sort of cat size. Um, and um, they used to hang around in the trees, having a nice time. And then Gondwana land split up. There's always like sounds like some sort of '70s rock group going their own way for <laughs> reasons of musical differences. But as you probably remember, uh, Gondwanaland was um, was that vast continental landmass that consisted what then became South America, Africa, uh, India, and Southeast Asia, Australasia, uh, oh, no, Australia, Australia, and not—and this will turn out to be significant later—not New Zealand, which turns out to be just a lot of gunk that came up from under the ocean. <laughs> And, as I say, lemurs were were, were the dominant primate around the world. And when when all these land masses split up, and Madagascar was one of them, Madagascar kind of sailed off into the middle of what then suddenly became the Indian Ocean Um, and took with it a representative sample of the livestock of the period, which included a a, a lot of lemurs. And um, they basically sort of sat there for millions and millions of years in glorious isolation, while in the rest of the world, a new creature emerged, a new creature arrived, that was much more intelligent than the lemurs, according to it, much more <laughs> much more competitive, much more aggressive, and incredibly interested in all the things you could do with twigs. Twigs were absolutely wonderful. There's so much you can do with twigs. You can dig in the ground for things with twigs. You can burrow under the bark of trees for grubs. You can hit each other with twigs. If there had been copies of Twig User magazine around in those days, these creatures would have been, would have been lining up for it. Um, and these creatures, which were, as you probably guessed, called the monkeys, because they were more competitive and more aggressive, and they lived in the same habitat as the lemurs. They successfully supplanted the lemurs everywhere in the world other than Madagascar, because Madagascar was right out in the middle of the Indian Ocean and they couldn't get there. They couldn't get there until about 1500 years ago when due to startling advances in twig technology. They were able to get there in boats and eventually planes. And suddenly, the lemurs that had had this place to themselves for millions and millions and millions of years were suddenly facing their old enemy, the monkey. So this is Madagascar. And it turns out that the rarest of the lemurs, and when I say the rarest of the lemurs, at this particular point in the mid-'80s, they were thought to be the rarest of the lemurs. Uh, We've now discovered an even rarer lemur called the... uh, the golden bamboo lemur, which went straight to the number number one of endangered lemurs, um, uh, but the aye-eye is a very very peculiar animal. It looks like an agglomeration of all sorts of other different animals. So, for instance, it has um, it has a sort of fox's ears, and it has little sort of bitey rabbit's teeth, and it has um, a kind of ostrich tail as an ostrich feather as a tail. Um, and it has, it, it, it has very weird eyes. There's got, actually, there's, it, it, it has Marty Feldman's eyes. Uh, they're kind of sort of looking slightly beyond you into a sort of other dimension just over your left shoulder. Um, and, um, but it also has one very, very, very peculiar characteristic, which is its middle finger on both hands is skeletally thin and very, very long. And it turns out there's only one other animal in the entire world um, that has this feature. And this is uh, called, I I love zoologists to have such vivid imaginations, Uh, it's called the long fingered possum. Um, (laughs) And this is a creature that lives in New Guinea. Uh, and in fact, it has—it's uh, it's its fourth finger that's skeletally thin and elongated. And this, this is the thing that tells us that there's no relationship between these animals. It's pure convergent evolution. Because the, the, fa- the common factor between Madagascar and the Ai-Ai and New Guinea and the long-fingered possum is that in both habitats, there are no woodpeckers. <laughs> and you see, the thing is, Life is very, very, life is very, very op- opportunistic, and it'll take advantage of any food source it finds uh, uh, around the place. And if uh, if there are no woodpeckers looking for the bark, looking under the bark of trees for grubs, then um, then in this case it'll be the mammals uh, that that grow this skeletally thin, long finger to burrow under the bark of the tree and and get at this source of food, which is the grubs under the bark. So. The I.I. is this very, very, very strange creature. And at, the ti- at this time, it was thought there were only about 15 of them left. And um, they lived, actually not on Madagascar itself, but on a tiny little rainforest island just off the coast of Madagascar called Nosy Mangabe. And it was just off the northwest tip of Madagascar. Now, to get there, what you had to do is you had to fly in a 747 to Madagascar, and then in a terrible old jalopy of an aeroplane from Madagascar up to, the north, up to the northwest port. And from there, you had to go in a kind of decreasingly excellent series of carts and trucks and so on <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, to a little port where there was going to be a boat that was going to take us to Nosy Mangabe. So we arrived there and arrived at the port, and we were looking around for the boat that was going to take us to Nosy Mangabe, and we couldn't see it. And we kept on asking people, you know, where's this boat? And they would say, it's there, it's there. And we couldn't see what they're pointing at, because there was this terrible, rotting old hulk in the way. <laughs> um, well, as you guessed, this is the terrible, rotting old hulk that we had to go to Nosy Mangabe in. And it, it, it didn't fulfill what, to my mind, was the sort of basic criteria of a boat, in that it, it, in, in that it it was basically full of ocean, and it seemed to me that the whole point of a boat was to keep the ocean on the outside. Um, anyway, so we crossed to Nosy Mangabe, and it's this tiny little, very, very beautiful little rainforest island, and uh, we hit a major problem, which of course is that um, um, this animal not only lives in trees, nobody has seen it for years and years and years, not only it li- it lives in trees, but it's also it's a nocturnal animal. Um, And the quality of batteries in Madagascar is very, very poor. Uh, So we spent night after night after night traipsing through the rainforest in what can only be described as the rain. (laughs) Getting rather ratty. And basically, we sort of spent night after night sort of huddled under tarpaulins and looking at it stopped raining yet? Um, and every now and then, we sort of go out and try and find this damn animal. And we actually, there's this wonderful, we found this hut. It used to be the sort of game warden's, not game warden, it was um, a, a, a ranger's hut. And it was a tiny little hut. And it was actually full of wildlife. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> what happened, you see, was, is you'd um, um, You'd open the door, and you would hear all this noise. And you'd turn on the light, and it would all stop. (laughs) And you'd see these sort of giant spiders around the wall, each with a sort of half-eaten bug in their mouth. Say, yes, yes. And you turn the light out and turn, <laughs> So this is our shelter. You know, we were having a great time. Uh, and eventually but, eventually, but one night, one night, we were all sort of, as I have to say, huddled under our tarpaulins, and I sort of got out and had a wander around. And suddenly, suddenly I looked up, and on a branch about that high above my head, this creature came out. This creature came out along the branch, looked down at me, and I looked at it. And as it looked at me, it obviously didn't at all like the look of what it saw. It turned around and went away again. (laughs) whole encounter about ten seconds. And that's what we'd come for that I I had actually seen, and we saw, and we all just managed to get a quick photograph of it when it appeared, but I'd suddenly realized we'd seen an eye eye. Now, I was absolutely transfixed by that moment for reasons that I couldn't entirely explain to myself immediately. Um, Because a month earlier, I'd never even heard of this animal, and now here, here I was, staring at it, thinking there's something extraordinary happening here. So I began to sort of think about it a little bit. And the thought I put together was this, that in traveling here, in traveling on, uh, on the 747 to Tananaree, which is the capital of Madagascar, in this terrible old gel- loppy of an airplane that took us up to the um, northwest corner, and then in the decreasingly excellent series of carts and trucks, and uh, then in the rotting old hulk that took us to uh, the rainforest, where we basically walked through the rainforest night after night. It was as if we were taking a kind of time journey, a time travel journey, back through the history of twig technology. (laughs) And what this encounter had been, what this encounter had been was I was a monkey looking at a lima. And you suddenly think, There is a huge amount of history to this moment that we don't think, we don't realize we carry around with us. Our our roots in this planet go back an awfully, awfully, awfully long way. And we don't tend to think about that very much. And it takes a confrontation like this suddenly to to, 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 to realize how sort of broad and deep your family goes. So I thought, well, this is terribly interesting. And I talked to... The guy who'd been kind of my guide out there, who was a a zoologist who'd been sent along to make make sure I didn't sort of fall out of trees and so on, Um, and his name was Mark Carwardine. And I said, um, I would love it if we could, do you fancy the idea of sort of going around the world and looking for other rare and endangered species of animal, maybe doing a book about it? he said, well, that's what I do for a living. Um, So yeah, okay. And so we did. Now, there was a pause at that moment, because I had a couple of novels I'd just contracted to write. Um, So I wrote Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency and the Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, and then it was time to go. And the first place we went, we went to look for a particular animal, which was the Komodo dragon lizard. Now, you know what lizards are like, don't you? This mean, they sort of <laughs> nice little sort of green. Uh, the Komodo dragon lizard is a little bit bigger than that. Um, uh, the biggest one we saw actually was um, about 13 feet long. And its head came up to about here. Um, uh, fucking huge, I think, is the technical <laughs> term. Um, It's thought they're the origin of the Chinese dragon myth, because they are huge, huge, giant, giant lizards. They're scaly. um, They're man-eaters. Literally, they are man-eaters. And they don't actually breathe fire, but they do have the worst breath of any creature known to man. Um, And and they live on this island called Komodo. Now, it's not enough, it turns out, that this island has 1,500, 1, man-eating dragons on it. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it. It turns out that actually the most endangered animal on the, on the island is anything other than the dragons, <laughs> and in fact, When I say they're man-eaters, they don't actually eat you sort of straight out. They don't sort of lunge at you and just gobble you up. They sort of sneak around and they come and give you a bit of a bite. Um, because the, the, the saliva is so virulent that, art, that your wound will not heal, and after a while, you will die. And, it doesn't, and so one of the dragons will get to eat you. It doesn't matter if it's the same one that ate you. They just, they just have a strategy of having as many dead and dying creatures lying around the <laughs> island as they can manage, and that kind of keeps them going. Um, but it, it turns out it's not enough that the island has 1,500 man-eating dragons on it. Just to make it a little bit more interesting, it also has more poisonous snakes on it per square meter of land than any equivalent area of land anywhere on Earth. So we approached Komodo, I have to say, slightly nervously and in a slightly roundabout way. Uh, In fact, we approached it in such a roundabout way that we went via Melbourne in Australia. Um, And uh, the reason we went via Melbourne was that somebody we wanted to go and see there, a man called Dr. Struan Sutherland. Um, And um, I actually wanted to read you a little bit um, uh, about him. He was um, uh, a a great expert in in snake venom. And um, I should apologize before I read this, actually, for the fact that I don't do a My Australian accent isn't very good. But then, what the hell, you're all Americans. You won't know the difference anyway. There is in Melbourne a man who probably knows more about poisonous snakes than anyone else on earth. His name is Dr. Struan Sutherland, and he has devoted his entire life to a study of venom. And I'm bored of talking about it, he said, when we went along to see him the next morning, laden with tape recorders and notebooks. Can't stand all these poisonous creatures, all these snakes and insects and fish and things, wretched things, biting everybody, and then people expect me to tell them what to do about it. I'll tell them what to do. Don't get bitten in the first place. That's the answer. I've had enough of telling people all the time. Hydroponics, now that's interesting. Taught you all you like about hydroponics. Fascinating stuff. Growing plants artificially in water. Very interesting technique. We'll need to know all about it if we're going to go to Mars and places. Where did you say you were going? Uh, Komodo. Well, don't get bitten. That's all I can say. <laughs> and don't come running to me if you do, because you won't get here in time. And anyway, I've got enough on my plate. Look at this office, full of poisonous animals all over the place. See this tank? It's full of fire ants, venomous little creatures. What are we going to do about them? Anyway, I've got some little fairy cakes in, in case you are hungry. Would you like some little cakes? I can't remember where I put them. Um, um, there's some tea, but it's not very good. Anyway, sit down, for heaven's sake. So, you're going to Komodo. Well, I don't know why you want to do that, but I suppose you have your reasons. There are 15 different types of snake on Komodo, and half of them are poisonous. The only potentially deadly ones are the Russell's Viper, the Bamboo Viper, and the Indian Cobra. The Indian Cobra is the 15th deadliest snake in the world, and all the other 14 are here in Australia. (laughs) That's why it's hard for me to find time to get on my hydroponics, all these snakes all over the place, and spiders. The most poisonous spider is the Sydney funnel web. We get about 500 people a year bitten by spiders. A lot of them used to die, so we had to develop an antidote to stop people bothering me with it all the time. (laughs) Took us years. Then we developed the snake bite detector kit. Not that you need a kit to tell you when you've been bitten by a snake. You usually know, but the kit is something that will detect what type you've been bitten by so you can treat it properly. Would you like to see a kit? I've got a couple here in the venom fridge. Here, let's have a look. Oh, look, the cakes are in here too, quick. (laughs) Have one while there's still fresh fairy cakes. A bite to myself. He handed around these snake venom detection kits and his home-baked fairy cakes and retreated back to his desk, where he beamed at us cheerfully from behind his curly beard and bow tie. We admired the kits, which were small, efficient boxes, neatly packed with tiny bottles, a pipette, a syringe, and a complicated set of instructions that I wouldn't want to have to read for the first time in a panic. And and then we asked him how many of the snakes he'd been bitten by himself. Ah, none of them, he said. Another area of expertise I've developed is that of getting other people to handle the dangerous animals. (laughs) Won't do it myself, don't want to get bitten, do I? You know what it says on my book jackets? Hobbies, gardening with gloves, fishing with boots, travelling with care. That's the answer. What else? Well, in addition to the boots, wear thick, baggy trousers and preferably have half a dozen people tramping along in front of you, making as much noise as possible. The snakes pick up the vibrations and get out of your way, unless it's a death adder, otherwise known as the death Adder, which just lies there. People can walk right past it and over it and nothing happens. I've heard of 12 people in line walking over a death adder and the 12th person accidentally trod on it and got bitten. Normally you're quite safe if you're 12th in line. You're not eating your cakes. Come on, get them down here. There's plenty more in the venom fridge. We asked tentatively if we could perhaps take a snake bite detector kit with us to Komodo. Ah, of course you can, of course you can. Take as many as you like. Won't do you a blind bit of good, because they're only for Australian snakes. (laughs) So what do we do if we get bitten by something deadly, then, I asked. He blinked at me as if I was stupid. Well, what do you think you do, he said. You die, of course, that's what (laughs) deadly means. But what about cutting open the wound and sucking out the blood, sucking out the poison, I asked. Well, rather you than me, he said. I wouldn't want a mouthful of poison. Shouldn't do you any harm, though. I mean, snake toxins have a high molecular weight, so they won't penetrate the blood vessels in the mouth the way that alcohol or some drugs do. And then the poison gets destroyed by the acids in your stomach. But it's not necessarily going to do much good either. I mean, you're not likely to be able to get much of the poison out, but you're probably going to make the wound a lot worse trying. And in a place like Komodo, it means you quickly have a seriously infected wound to contend with as well as a leg full of poison. Septicemia, gangrene, you name it, it'll kill you. Well, what about a tourniquet? I asked. Well, fine, if you don't mind having your leg cut off afterwards. You'd have to, because if you cut off the blood supply to it completely, it'll just die. And if you can find anyone in that part of Indonesia, you'd trust to take your leg off, then you're a braver man than me. (laughs) Now, I'll tell you, the only thing you can do is apply a pressure bandage direct to the wound and wrap the whole leg up tightly, but not too tightly. Slow the blood flow, but don't cut it off, or you'll lose the leg. Hold your leg, or whatever bit you've been bitten in, lower than your heart and your head. Keep very... Very still, breathe slowly, and get to a doctor immediately. <laughs> if you're on Komodo, that means a couple of days, which time you'll be well dead. <laughs> now the only answer, and I mean this quite seriously, is don't get bitten. There's no reason why you should. Any of the snakes there will get out of your way well before you even see them. You don't really need to worry about the snakes if you're careful. Now the things you really need to worry about are the marine creatures. What? <laughs> uh scorpion fish, stonefish, sea snakes, much more poisonous than anything on land. Get stung by stonefish, the pain alone will kill you. People drown themselves just to stop the pain. where are all these things? Oh, just in the sea. Tons of them. I wouldn't go near it if I were you. Full of poisonous animals. Hate them. (laughs) Is there anything you do like? Yeah, he said, hydroponics. (laughs) No, I said, I mean, are there any poisonous creatures you particularly fond of? He looked out of the window for a moment. Ah, there was, he said, but she left me. in fact my favorite of all the animals we went to see my favorite was an animal called the kakapo and the kakapo is a kind of parrot it lives in new zealand it's a flightless parrot it's forgotten how to fly sadly it has also forgotten that it's forgotten how to fly so A seriously worried kakapo has been known to run up a tree and jump out of it. (laughs) Opinion divides as to what next happens. Some people say it has developed a kind of rudimentary parachuting ability. Other people say it flies a bit like a brick. But the thing is, when I talk about a seriously worried kakapo, the fact is you're not likely to find a seriously worried kakapo, because kakapos have not learned to worry. <laughs> now, seems an extraordinary thing to say, because worrying is something we're all so terribly good at, and which comes so absolutely naturally to us, we think it must be as natural as breathing. Um, but it turns out that worrying is simply an acquired habit, like anything else, it's a um, and it's, 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 it, 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 it's something you're genetically disposed to do or not to do. And the thing is that the Kakapo grew up in New Zealand, which was, until man arrived, a country which had no predators. And it's predators that, over a series of generations, will teach you to worry. <laughs> and if you don't have predators, then the need to worry will never occur to you. Now, I said earlier that New Zealand turns out to be just a lot of gunk that came up from under the ocean. And this is why, when it emerged, it didn't have any life on it at all, maybe a few dead fish. So, the only animals that inhabited New Zealand were the animals that could fly there, i.e., birds. Uh, and there were also a couple of species of bat, which are mammals, but you get the point. So, it was only birds that lived on New Zealand. And in an absence of predators, there was nothing for them to worry about. Now, it's very, very peculiar for us to try and understand this because we have never, ever encountered an. Uh, 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 an environment with no predators in it. Why not? Because we are predators, and because therefore if we are in that environment, it is a predated environment. <laughs> and um, you know, for, 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 for the Europeans who originally arrived in, in New Zealand, um, um, sorry, <laughs> that, that, that's an extraordinary thing to say. Of course the, there were the uh, uh, the Maoris before them and before them, the Maoris. Uh, the Maoris ate the Maoris, <laughs> and um, then the Europeans came along. Um, but before, before all that happened, as I say, the island, uh, the, uh, the island had no predators, and the birds basically le- led a, a worry free life. Now, you can actually see another example of this if you go to Galapagos. There is um, a type of animal, there's a bird on the Galapagos Islands called the blue-footed booby. And the blue-footed booby is so-called, I believe, uh, for two reasons. Uh, One of which has to do with the colour of its feet. Um, And the other has to do with this piece of behaviour I'm about to describe. Because apparently you can walk up to a blue-footed booby, that'll be sitting there on the beach or on a branch, and you can walk up and you can just sort of pick him up. (laughs) And what the booby will be thinking... Is that once you finish with him, you'll put him back. (laughs) And if you haven't lived through generation after generation of people trying to eat you, it's very easy to come to that conclusion. Um, So the Kakapo, as I say, had grown up in an environment without predators. And because they were all birds, and because nature has a way of, uh, uh, as I say, very opportunistic, and life will flow into any niche where it's possible to make a living, so, if I can be very naughty and anthropomorphized for a moment, it's as if some of the birds figured out, well, this flying stuff is very, very expensive. It takes a lot of energy. You have to eat a bit, fly a bit, eat a bit, fly a bit. Because every every time you eat something, you know you're weighed down. It's heavier to fly. So eat a bit, fly a bit. I mean, there there are other ways of life available. And so it's as if some of the birds said, "Well, actually, what we could do is we could settle in for a rather larger meal and go for a waddle afterwards." And so gradually, over many, many generations, a lot of the birds lost the ability to fly. They took up life on the ground. Uh, the kiwi, the most famous bird, I guess, of New Zealand, and the weka, and, uh, and, and the old night parrot, as it was called, the kakapo, which is this sort of big, fat, soft, fluffy, lugubrious bird. And because it has never learnt to worry, when man arrived and brought with him his deadly menagerie of dogs and cats and, uh, and stoats and, and that, most, that most destructive of all animals other than man, which is ratus ratus, the ship's rat, suddenly, suddenly these birds were waddling for their lives. <laughs> Except, in fact, they didn't know to do that because when they were confronted with an animal as a predator... They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what the social form was. They just wait for the other animal to make the next move. And, of course, it's usually a fairly swift and uh, and deadly one. (laughs) So so suddenly, from there being uh, a population of, we don't know exactly how many, probably not as many as a million, but hundreds of thousands of these birds, their population plunged at an incredible rate down into the low 40s which is roughly where it is at the moment. And, and so there's, there's, there, 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 are, there are groups of people who dedicate their entire lives to trying to save these animals, trying to conserve them. And one of the problems they come across is that it's, it's all very well just to protect them from predators, which is very, very, very hard to do. But the next problem they come across is the, is the mating habits of the kakapo, because it turns out that the mating habits of the kakapo are incredibly long drawn out, fantastically complicated, and almost entirely ineffective. (laughs) Uh, Some people will tell you that the mating call of the male kakapo actively repels the female kakapo, (laughs) which is the sort of behavior you otherwise only find really in discotheques. Um, the people who've heard the mating call of the, the male kakapo um, will tell you, 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 you can hardly even, even hear it. It's like a sort of, it, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what they do. This animal, every, for about 100 nights of the year, it, it, it goes through its mating ritual. And what it does is it finds some great rocky outcrop Looking out over the great rolling valleys of New Zealand, because acoustics are very important to what's about to happen. (laughs) And it it, it burrows out this kind of, carves out this kind of bowl that it sits in. And it sits there, and it puffs out this great sort of air sacs around its chest. And it sits there, and and these are reverberation chambers. This is a kind of reverberation chamber. And it sits there, and for night after night after night, for a hundred nights of the year, for eight hours of the night, it performs the opening bars of Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> now... <laughs> I see some grey hairs, hairs here, so you'll, you'll know the album I'm referring to. Um, which... As you remember, starts with this great sort of boom, boom, boom. So it's a heartbeat. It's a heartbeat sound, and this is the noise that the, the kakapo makes. But it's so it's so deep that you more kind of feel it like a wobble in the pit of your stomach. You can only just just sort of tune your hearing into it. Now I, didn't, I never managed to get to hear it, but um, uh, those who do say it say feel that it's a very Eerie sound because you don't really hear it; you more kind of feel it, and um, it's it's bass sound. It's very very deep bass sound, just below the level of our hearing. Now it turns out that bass sound has two important characteristics to it. One of which is that these great long. Waves; these great long sound waves travel great distances, and they fill these great valleys of the South Island in New Zealand. Um, and that's good. That's good. But there is another characteristic of bass sound, which you may be familiar with if you've got those kind of, you know, the kind of sort of stereo speakers you can get, where you have two tiny little ones that give you a treble sound. Uh, um, And you have to put them very carefully in the room, because they're going to define the stereo image. And then you have what's known as a subwoofer, which is the bass box. And uh, that's going to produce just the bass sound. And you can put that anywhere in the room you like. You can put it behind the sofa, if you like, because the other characteristic of bass sound, and remember, we're talking about the mating call of the male kakapo, is that you can't tell where it's coming from. So just imagine, if you will, this male kakapo sitting up here making all this booming noise, which if there's a female out there and if she likes the sound, which there probably isn't, and if she likes the sound of this booming, which she probably doesn't, then she can't find the person who's making it. But supposing she does, supposing she's out there, she probably isn't, she likes the sound that's booming, she probably doesn't, supposing she can find him, which she probably can't, she will then only consent to mate if the podocarp tree is in fruit. (laughs) Now, we've all had relationships like that. But supposing they get through all those obstacles, supposing she manages, supposing she manages to find him, manages, she will then lay one egg every two or three years, which will promptly get eaten by a stoat or a rat. And you think, well, so far from sort of trying to sort of save them and conserve them, how on earth has it managed to survive for this long? And the answer is terribly interesting. Which is this, it seems like absurd behavior to us, but it's only because its environment has changed in one particular and dramatic way that is completely invisible to us. And its behavior is perfectly attuned to the environment it developed in, and completely out of tune with the, develop- with the environment it now finds itself in. Because in an environment where nothing is trying to predate you, you don't want to reproduce too fast. And it turns out you can actually actually sort of graph this in a computer. Um, that if you uh, if you if you take a given reproduction rate, and you take the uh, the ability of any given uh, environment to sustain any particular level of population. Um, and you start, say, with a fairly low reproduction rate, and you just plot it over several generations, and you'll find the population goes up and up and up and then sort of steadies out and achieves a nice plateau. Tweak the reproduction rate up a bit, and it goes up a little bit higher, and then maybe settles down and levels out. Tweak the reproduction rate a little bit higher yet, and it goes up, and it goes too high, and it drops down, goes too low, drops, uh, goes up too high, and settles into an oscillating sine wave. Tweak it a bit more, and it starts to oscillate between four different values. Tweak it more and more and more, and you suddenly hit this terribly fashionable condition called chaos, where the population of the animal just swings wildly from one, gener- from one year to another, and will just hit zero at one point just out of the sheer mathematics of the situation. And once you've hit zero, there's kind of no coming back. And so, because nature tends to be very parsimonious and is not going to expend expend energy and resources on something for which there is no return, so um, so the, the, the reproduction rate of an animal in an environment with no predators will tune itself to an appropriate level of reproduction. Now, if there's nothing trying to eat you particularly, then that reproduction rate will be very low. And that is the rate at which the Kakapo used to reproduce and continues to reproduce despite the fact that it's been predated, because it doesn't know any better, because nothing, nothing has managed to teach it anything different along the way. Because the change that occurred happened so suddenly there was no kind of slope. There's no slope of, uh, of, of gradual evolutionary pressure, which is the thing that tends to bring about change. If you have a sudden dramatic change, then there's, there's no direction to go and you just have disaster. So, again, if I can anthropomorphize for a moment, what seems to have happened is that the... Um, um, the animal suddenly reaching a crisis in its population thinks, "Well, I better just do do what I do fantastically well. Do what is my main thing, which is I re- reproduce really, really slowly." <laughs> and its population goes down. Well, I better really do what I do and, and reproduce really, 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 really slowly. And and it seems absurd to us um, because because we can see a larger uh, a, a larger picture than they can, but. If, if, if that is the, the type of behavior that you've evolved successfully to, uh, to produce, then to do anything else would be against kakapo nature, would be an in-kakapo thing to do. <laughs> um, and it has nothing to teach it any other than to... Just do what it's always done to follow its successful strategy. And because times have changed around it, it's no longer a successful strategy, and the animal is in terrible trouble. There's another animal we went to find, which is in even worse trouble now. And this is the Baiji, the Yangtze River dolphin which is an almost blind river dolphin. The reason it's almost blind is that there's nothing to see in the Yangtze River. (laughs) Thousands and thousands of years of agriculture along the banks of the Yangtze River have washed so much mud and silt and so into it that the river has become completely turbid, which is a word I didn't even know the meaning of until I saw the Yangtze River and basically you can't see anything in it, <laughs> and so these animals, dolphins, as I say, gradually they abandoned the use of sight. Now, as, 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 as we all know, um, marine mammals also have this other faculty available to them, which they can develop, which is that of sound. And so, what the Yangtze River dolphins did uh, was over over thousands of years. As their, as their eyesight deteriorated, so their sonar, sonar abilities became more and more and more sophisticated and more powerful and more complex. And it's, it's very interesting. You can, you can actually watch, uh, if you feel like it, um, the, the development of a Baiji fetus. Um, and you'll see that, uh, Right, as you may or may not know, there is a certain amount of truth in the idea that... Um, uh, the development of the fetus recapitulates stages in the evolutionary development of an animal. And you see, right at the beginning of the development of the fetus, its eyes are in the normal dolphin position, which are kind of relatively far down on the side of the head. And gradually, as the generations have gone by, its, 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 its eyes are kind of migrated up the side of the head. And you see this happening as the fetus develops. Um, um, because gradually, over the generations, there's only light coming directly from up above, and there's no ambient light. And then, as that too dies out, so the eyes gradually atrophy. And instead, the, um, um, the, the, the sonar abilities take over, and these animals developed incredibly sensitive and incredibly precise abilities to navigate themselves around in the water just using um, sonar. And all is well and good until the 20th century, when man invents the diesel engine. And suddenly all hell breaks loose beneath the surface of the Yangtze, because it's suddenly full of noise. And so suddenly these animals find themselves trapped by something that nobody had any means of foreseeing, that the thing they now rely on has been completely overwhelmed by the noise pollution that we put in, in, in the oceans. And um, so suddenly, these animals that used to be uh, so sophisticated in their ability to find their way around are sort of bumping into things, bumping into boats, bumping into ships' propellers, finding themselves uh, ensnared in fishermen's nets and so on, because we've basically screwed up the next of their faculties. And it's, it's a very curious feeling, I remember, sort of sitting on a boat um, on the Yangtze River and looking well, trying to look into it. You couldn't look into it because it's turbid, and you remember what turbid means. Um, and, and, and realizing that all this noise down there as well is, means that even... It, 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 it's very curious to think that the, the, there may have been a dolphin somewhere near me. I didn't know. I mean, by this stage, uh, this is 10 years ago, there were only 200 left in a, in a stretch of water about 200 miles long. So you had no idea if there's one anywhere near you. But it's curious because you think if that if if you and another person, another creature are kind of in the same world, then you must be feeling roughly similar. But one of the things you begin to realize when you look at different animals uh, is that because they've b- because of their evolutionary history and because of uh, the forms they have developed into and the ways they have uh, developed of perceiving the world. Um, they may be inhabiting the same world, but actually a completely different universe. But actually a completely different universe, because you create your own universe from what you do with the sensory data coming in. So, it's, uh, so you realize that you're here, and there's a dolphin there, and you're comfortable. And the dolphin may be actually in a species of hell, but but has no means of communicating that with you because we've kind of taken, we've kind of taken charge and we, 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 the, there's no way of kind of communicating with the management that there's a problem. Um, so I suddenly became very interested in what it must actually sound like in the Yangtze River. Now, we'd gone to record some BBC radio programs while we were there so as well as Mark Carwardian, the zoologist, we also had a, a sound recorder from the BBC. So I said to him, um, could we actually drop a microphone into the Yangtze so we can see what it actually sounds like in the river? And he said, well, I wish you'd said that before we left London. <laughs> I said, why? And he said, well, because I could have just checked out a waterproof microphone, but you, know, you, didn't, you didn't mention anything about recording underwater. I said, no, no I didn't. Um, is there anything we can do about it? And he said, well, there is, there is actually one technique they, they teach us at the BBC for recording underwater in an emergency. <laughs> um, do either of you have condoms with you? <laughs> and we didn't. It wasn't that kind of trip. Um, <laughs> but we decided we'd better go and buy some. And so we went into the streets of Shanghai trying to buy some condoms. And I just want to um, read you a little passage about this. (laughs) The friendship store seemed like a promising place to buy condoms. We had a certain amount of difficulty in getting the idea across. We passed from one counter to another in the large open plan department store, which consists of many different individual booths, stalls and counters, but no one was able to help us. We first started at the stalls which looked as if they sold medical supplies, but had no luck. By the time we got to the stalls which sold bookends and chopsticks, we knew we were onto a loser, but at least we'd found a young shop assistant who spoke English. We tried to explain to her what it was we wanted but seemed to reach the limit of her vocabulary pretty quickly. So I got out my notebook and drew a condom very carefully, (laughs) including the little sort of extra balloon on the end. She frowned at it, but still didn't get the idea. She brought us a wooden spoon, a candle, a sort of paper knife, and surprisingly enough, a small porcelain model of the Eiffel Tower. and and then at last lapsed into a posture of defeat. Some other girls in the stall gathered round to help, but they were also defeated by our picture. At last I plucked up the bravado to perform a delicate little mime, And, at last, the penny dropped. (laughs) Ah, the first girl said, suddenly wreathed in smiles. Ah, yes. They all beamed delightedly at us as they got the idea. You do understand, I asked. Yes, yes, I understand. Do you have any? No, she said, not have. Oh, but, 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 yes. I say you where you go, okay? Thank you, thank you very much, yes. You go 616 Nanjing Road, okay? They have there. You ask Rubberover, okay? Rubberover? Rubberover! You ask. They have. Okay, have a nice day. (laughs) She giggled happily about this with her hand over her mouth. We thanked them again profusely and left with much waving and smiling. The news seemed to spread very quickly around the store, and everybody waved at us. They seemed terribly pleased to have been asked. When we reached 616 Nanjing Road, which turned out to be another smaller department store and not a knocking shop we'd have been expecting, our pronunciation of rubber over seemed to let us down and produce another wave of baffled incomprehension. This time, I went straight for the mime that had served us so well before, and it seemed to do the trick at once. The shop assistant, a slightly more middle-aged lady with severe hair, marched straight to a cabinet of drawers, brought us back a packet, and placed it triumphantly on the counter in front of us. Success, we thought. Opened the packet and found it to contain a bubble sheet of pills. Right idea, said Mark with a sigh. Wrong method. We were quickly floundering again as we tried to explain to the now slightly affronted lady that it wasn't precisely what we were after. But by this time, a crowd of about 15 onlookers had gathered round us, some of whom, I was convinced, had followed us all the way from the friendship Store. <laughs> One of the things you quickly discover in China is that we are all at the zoo. If you stand still for a moment, people will gather around and stare at you. The unnerving thing is they don't stare intently or inquisitively. They just stand there, often right in front of you, and watch you as blankly as if you were a dog food commercial. <laughs> At last, one young and pasty-faced man with glasses pushed through the crowd and said he spoke a little English, and could he help? We thanked him and said, Yes, we wanted to buy some condoms, some rubber-overs, and we'd we'll be very grateful if he'd explained that for us. He looked puzzled, picked up the rejected packet lying on the counter in front of the affronted shop assistant and said, not want rubber over, this better. (laughs) No, Mark said, we definitely want rubber over, not pills. Why want rubber over, pill better? (laughs) You tell him, said Mark. It's to record dolphins, I said. Um, <laughs> or, not the actual dolphins, in fact. What we want to record is the noise in the Yangtze, that it's, it's to go over the microphone, you see, and, oh, just tell him you want to fuck someone, said the sound <laughs> recorders, and you can't wait. But by now the young man was edging nervously away from us, suddenly realizing that we were dangerously insane (laughs) and should simply be humored and escaped from. He said something hurriedly to the shop assistant and and backed away into the crowd. The shop assistant shrugged, scooped up the pills, opened another drawer, and pulled out a packet of condoms. We bought nine just to be safe. So, a couple of days later, we were standing on the banks of the Yangtze on a very desperate, drizzly, gray day, and we put the microphone in this little sort of pink thing <laughs> and dropped it into the water. And um, uh, now I, d- I don't usually do impressions, uh, but I'm going to do for you an impression of what it sounds like under under the surface of the Yangtze River. And it's something like this. The Yangtze River, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And you suddenly realize what an appalling thing we had inflicted on these poor animals um, that that lived in a world of super-sensitive sound and hearing. Um, and this was why these animals were now desperately endangered, because we, ha- having having removed one way of life from them, we were now removing a second. The problem is, we're about to remove a third. I said that um, when I was there, it was ten years ago. There were two hundred of these left. Today, there are twenty. And because the uh, the Chinese are building these giant dams to uh, to dam the Yangtze at one of the most beautiful and spectacular sites in all the world, the the Three Gorges, uh, and they're damming it there, which means that the Yangtze dolphin will, at that point, definitely go extinct. Um, and it's 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 terribly sad. Um, I, the peculiar thing about dams is that we keep on building them, and none of them ever do any good. Uh, it's not quite true, because unfortunately, there are, in the history of dam making, two that did work. One is the Hoover, and the other is the, um, uh, the, 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 the one up in the north west, Pacific Northwest, the um, Coolidge Dam. Um, and every other one doesn't work. Um, And for some reason, we never managed to be able to quite stop us. We always think, we'll just build one more. I think we must have some sort of beaver genes deep in our uh, (laughs) uh, But the sad thing, as I say, is is that the Yangtze River dolphin is definitely and without doubt bound for extinction. And it's very peculiar to me that we are living at the moment in an extraordinary age, an extraordinary renaissance, um, because we have got to the point where we suddenly understand the value of information, which you never had before. And we we call the age we live in that of information. And we've discovered that information is the, the most valuable resource we have. And as you all know, we've just spent billions of dollars, quite rightly, uh, in trying to understand the human genome. Um, And that's just one species. That's just us. And we've come to understand and realize how incredibly valuable this information is. Um, And and, and we've never understood kind of how it all worked together before, because... um, before we had, let me, let me put it this way. In the past, we've done science by taking things apart to see how they work. And it's led to extraordinary discoveries, extraordinary degrees of understanding. But the problem with taking things apart to see how they work is, even though it gets you down to the sort of fundamental particles, the fundamental principles, the fundamental forces at work, um, we still don't really understand how they work until we see them in motion. One of the things that came about as a result of understanding these fundamental principles was we came to invent this thing called a computer. And the great thing about the computer is that uh, unlike every previous um, analytical tool, and there, have been t- there have been, it's funny how many of these have to do with glass. Um, when we first came across uh, when we, when we, uh, uh, um, glass which, is, you know, is a form of sand. Um, and we invented lenses, and we looked up into the, the sky. And we discovered um, from that, the fundamental... By studying the sky, we, we began to discover fundamental things about uh, gravity. Um, and uh, we also discovered that um, the universe seems to consist, terrifyingly enough, almost entirely of nothing. Uh, the next thing we did with uh, glass was we put them in microscopes, and we look down into this very, very, very solid world uh, around us and we see the fundamental particles there, the atoms uh, made up of protons and and neutrons with electrons spinning around them. We also discover that they seem to consist frighteningly almost entirely of nothing. And that uh, even where you do find something, it turns out it isn't actually there. It isn't actually a thing there, merely merely the possibility that there may be something there. <laughs> um, it kind of doesn't feel quite as real as this. Um, so it's only when the, the next thing that we do with sand, with silicon, uh, is we create the computer. And this finally enables us to start putting things together to see how they work. Um, and it allows us to see actual process at work, and we begin to see how very, very simple things lead inexorably by iteration after iteration to enormously complex processes emerging and blossoming. And to my mind, one of the uh, the most extraordinary things of our age, uh, I mean, those of us who are around will remember you know, seeing man walking on the moon for the first time, but I think the most dramatic and extraordinary um, thing that we have seen in our time is being able to see on computer screens the process by which enormously simple primitive things, processes, instructions, repeated many, many times over, very, very fast and iterated over generation of instructions, produce enormously complex results. So that we can st- we can suddenly start to create just out of fundamentally simple, primitive instructions. We can create the way in which uh, wind a uh, uh, wind behaves in a in a, in a wind tunnel, the turbulence of wind. We can see how uh, how light might dance in an imaginary dinosaur's eye, and we do it all out of fundamentally simple instructions. And as a result of that, we have finally come to an understanding of the way in which life has actually emerged. Now, there are an awful lot of things we don't know about life. But any life scientist will tell you that although there's an awful lot we don't know, there is no longer a deep mystery. There's no longer a deep mystery because we have actually seen with our own eyes The way in which simplicity gives rise to complexity. So that um, when I say there's no mystery, it's rather as if if you you imagine um, taking a detective from the 19th century, teaming him up with a detective from the late 20th century, and giving them this problem to work on, that uh, a suspect in a crime was seen one day to be walking down... The, uh, the street in the middle of London, and the next day was seen somewhere out in the desert in the middle of New Mexico. Now the 19th century detective will say, well, I haven't the faintest idea, I mean it must be some species of magic has happened. And he would have no idea about how to begin to solve what has happened here. For the 20th century detective, now he may never know whether the guy went on British Airways or United or American or where he hired his car from or all that kind of stuff, he may never find those details, but there won't be any fundamental mystery about what has happened. So for us, there's no longer a fundamental mystery about life. It is all the process of extraordinary eruptions of information and it's information that gives us this fantastically rich, complex world in which we live. But at the same time that we've discovered that, we are destroying it at a rate that has no precedent in history unless you go back to the point that we're hit by an asteroid. So there there is a kind of terrible irony that at the point that we are best able to understand and appreciate and value the richness of life around us, we are destroying it at a higher rate than has ever been destroyed before. And and we are losing species after species after species, day after day, just because we're burning the stuff down for firewood. And this is a kind of terrible indictment of our understanding. But you see, we make another mistake because we think somehow this is all right in some fundamental kind of way because we think that this is all sort of meant to happen. Now let me explain how we get into that kind of mindset because it's exactly the same kind of mindset that the Kakapo gets trapped in because his, what, what has been a very successful strategy for the Kakapo over generation after generation, for thousands and thousands of years, suddenly is the wrong strategy, and he has no means of knowing, because he's just doing what has been successful up till then. And we have always been, because we're toolmakers, because we take from our environment the stuff that we need to do what we want to do, and it's always been very successful for us. Um, you know, it, 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 I'll tell you what's happened. It's, it's as if we've actually kind of put the sort of pause button on our own, uh, process of evolution because, we've, because we have put a buffer around us which consists of uh, you know, medicine and education and buildings and all these kinds of things that protect us from the normal environmental pressures. Um, and it's our, our ability to make tools that enables us to do this. Now, generally speaking, what drives speciation is if a small group of animals gets separated out from the um, uh, from the main body by population pressure, some geographical upheaval or whatever. So imagine a small bunch gets, uh, suddenly finds itself stranded in a slightly colder environment. Then you know over a small number of generations then those genes that favor a thicker coat will come to the fore, and you come back a few generations later, the animal's got a thicker coat. Man, because we are able to uh, make tools, we arrive in a new environment uh, where it's much colder, and uh, we don't have to wait for that process because we see an animal that's already got a thicker coat. We say we'll have it off him. <laughs> and so we've kind of taken control of our environment, and uh, and that's all very that's all very well. But we need we need to be able to sort of rise above that process of uh, of uh, 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 we have to rise above that 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 vision and see a higher vision and see and understand the effect we're actually having. Now imagine, if you will, um, an early man. And let's just sort of see how this sort of mindset comes about. He's, he's, he's standing, look, surveying his world at the end of the day. And he looks at it and thinks, this is a very wonderful world I find myself in. This is, a, this is pretty good. I mean look I'm here I am the, the behind me is the mountains and the mountains are great because there are there are caves in the mountains where I can shelter um, either from the weather or from bears that occasionally come and try and attack me, and I can shelter there, so that's great. And then um, in front of me there's the forest, and the forest is full of nuts and berries and trees, and they feed me, and they're delicious, and they sort of keep me going. And, uh, and here's a stream going through, it's got fish running through it, and the water's delicious, and I drink the water, and everything's fantastic. And there, there's my cousin, Ugg. And Ugg, Ugg has caught a mammoth. Yay! <laughs> Ugg has got a mammoth. Mammoths are terrific. There's nothing greater than a mammoth, because a mammoth, basically, you can wrap yourself in the fur from the mammoth, you can eat the, um, uh, eat the meat of the mammoth, and you can use the bones of the mammoth to catch other mammoths. <laughs> this is, now, this world is a fantastically good world for me. And part of how we come to take command of our world, to take command of our environment, to make these tools with which are able to do this, is we ask ourselves questions about it the whole time. So this man, thinks starts to ask himself questions. says, so, so, so this, this world, he says, well, who... So, so, so who made it? Now, of course he thinks that, because he makes things himself. So he's looking for someone who will have made this world. He says, well, so who would have made this world? Well, he must be something a little bit like me, obviously much, much bigger, (laughs) and necessarily invisible, (laughs) but he would have made it. Now, why did he make it? Now, we always ask ourselves why, because we look for intention around us. Because we always intend, we do something with intention, you know, we, um, we boil an egg in order to eat it. Um, so we, we look at the rocks and we look at the trees and we wonder what intention is here even though it doesn't have intention. So we think, so what did this person who made this world intend it for? And this is the point where you think, well, it fits me very well. You know, the caves and the forests and the stream and the mammoths? He must have made it for me. I mean, there's no other conclusion you can come to. And it's rather like a puddle waking up one morning. I know they don't normally do this, but allow me, I'm a science fiction writer. (laughs) A puddle wakes up one morning and thinks this is a very interesting world I find myself in. It fits me very neatly. In fact, it fits me so neatly. I mean, really precise, isn't it? <laughs> it must have been made to have me in it. And the sun rises and is continuing to narrate the story about this whole being made to have him in it. And the sun rises and gradually the puddle is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And by the time the puddle ceases to exist, it's still thinking, it's still trapped in this idea that the the whole was there for it. And if we think the world is here for us, we will continue to destroy it in the way that we've been destroying it. Because we think we can do no harm. There's an awful lot of speculation, one way or another at the moment, about whether there's life on other planets or not. Carl Sagan, as you know, was very keen on the idea that there must be, the sheer numbers dictate, because there are billions and billions and billions, as he famously (laughs) did not say, in fact, um, of of worlds out there. So the chance must be that there's other life out there, there's other intelligent life out there. There are other voices at the moment you'll hear saying, well, actually, if you look at this set of circumstances um, uh, here on Earth, they are so extraordinarily specific that the the chances of there being something like this out there are actually pretty remote. Now, in a way, it doesn't matter. Because think of this. I mean, Carl Sagan, I think, himself said this. There are two possibilities. Either there is life out there on other planets, or there is no life out there on other planets. They are both utterly extraordinary ideas. (laughs) But there is the the possibility, there is a strong possibility, there isn't anything out there remotely like us. And we are behaving as if this, this planet, this extraordinary Utterly utterly extraordinary little ball of life is something we can just screw about with any way we like. And maybe we can't. Maybe we should be looking after it just a little bit better. Not for the world's sake. We talk rather grandly about saving the world. When we, we don't have to save the world, the world's fine. The world has been through five periods of mass extinction, 65 million years ago when, uh, as it seems, a comet hit the Earth at the same time that were vast volcanic eruptions in in India, which saw off the dinosaurs and something like 90% of the life on the planet at the time go back another, I think it's 150 million years earlier than that, to the Permian-Triassic boundary, another giant, giant, giant extinction. The the world has been through it many, many times before. Uh, And and what tends to happen, what what happens invariably after each mass extinction, is that there's there's, there's a huge amount of space available for new forms of life suddenly to emerge and flourish into it, just as the, um, the extinction of the dinosaurs um, um, uh, made way for us. Without that extinction, we would not be here. So the world is fine. We don't have to save the world. The world is big enough to look after itself. What we have to be concerned about is whether or not the world we live in will be capable of sustaining us in it. That's what we need to think about. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Now, if anybody has any questions I'm very happy to take questions and there are microphones down here at the
1: front and I suggest you use them <laughs> yeah hi thank you wonderful talk um, you say we should take care uh, to not destroy the planet um, there's one suggestion that's been made is that the reason why we destroy the planet is that we don't pay the true cost of things when we consume them um, the price of gasoline has been falling in real dollars, and the vehicles get bigger and bigger. We have these selfish, useless vehicles, I think they're called, the SUVs,
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to say, as as a Brit, you know, we sit there thinking, the Americans are complaining again because their gas prices have reached now nearly a quarter of what we pay.
1: (laughs) So- So I just wonder uh, whether you think that's a a good solution, is that if we would pay the true cost of things, if we would pay the $10 a gallon or whatever it really costs in terms of the impact on the environment, that that might make a difference? Um, It
0: it may be. I, 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 it. it. Uh, th- th- there, is a, uh, th- th- there is a problem I'm very, very conscious of here, which is that yeah, even though I'm talking from a conservationist point of view very, very strongly, you look back over the history of what you know, we in the conservation movement have said in the last 10 years and the previous 10 years and the previous 10 years to that, and most of what we've said we have to do about it or the ways we've gone about it Have actually turned out to be wrong now so it's very hard for me to pretend I can stand up here and say we have to do this and we have to do that because they may not be the right solution Um, I mean I'm terribly aware of this as far as uh, uh, I'm just going back again I'm thinking about sort of uh, uh, protection of, of, of animals in Africa, for instance, that time after time we've gone about it the wrong way, um, and you know, the, the conservation efforts of one set of ten years will, as much as be about as much as anything else, undoing the problems caused by the last ten years. So it is a it is it is a question of constant sort of um, self-education, trying to assimilate the information, trying to see what the consequence of what we've done so far has been what we can learn from that. Now, it may well be that um, uh, if we say, well, we're going to you know, uh, uh, multiply the cost of gas by by 10 times or whatever, that may have effects that we, we, we will put into, uh, there will be the law of unintended consequences, which, which come, comes into, uh, comes into play. Um, I think the best thing we can do is continually inform ourselves, be as, as aware of pos- as possible of what is actually happening. Now, if that, if that kind of feedback loop, saying, well, we're going to put, uh, 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 make the true cost of, 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 of the damage we're causing be part of what you have to pay, then that may very well be a very good answer, but I'm also worried that it may not be the answer, which is, is, um, is a complicated way of saying I don't know. <laughs>
1: Two questions. First, do you know where your towel is? <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, that so was I, always my problem. I mean, the, um,
0: <laughs> it, it, it's very funny that thing about the towel because <laughs> I, I'll tell you where it came from. I was um, I was a holiday with a bunch of people and we were in a villa in Corfu. And every day we'd set out for the beach, and just as we were setting out for the beach, for the beach there'd be a problem. And the problem would be that Douglas could not find his towel. <laughs> where was my towel? Was it under the bed? Was it on the end of the bed? Was it in the bed? Was it in the bathroom? Was it hanging on the line outside? Was it in the washing? Room? Was it? I had no idea, day after day, where the f*** my towel was. <laughs> and after a while, I just began to think, this must be symptomatic of somebody who is so sort of deeply chaotic uh, that... I, um, I, I then sort of—I I, think—I I don't know whether I ca- even came up with it first. but somebody on the holiday came up with the idea that um, you know somebody who was rather more together than I would would be somebody who would really know where their towel was. <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, and, 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 and so then, when I was writing that bit of hitchhiker, i i, I sort of—you very often put things in because you know what they mean, and it's, it's really kind of a flag to yourself. That in the next draft through, you're going to put something in that, me, that means to everybody else what this thing means to you. you know, and then it kind of stays there. And it turns out it does mean something
1: to everybody else as well. Does that answer your question? Uh, okay. And also, um, do we behave like people descended from stick-using monkeys or people descended from telephone cleavers? Um,
0: I think think we have both slots there in our genes, I'm afraid. Yep. I'm absolutely going to kill myself if I get out of here without asking this. Uh, This question occurred to me when my friend bodily forced me to pick up the first book in The Hitchhiker's Guide, and I read the very first sentences on the very first paragraph. What on God's green earth does this man have against digital watches? (laughs) <laughs> um, well I have to admit they've improved since I <laughs> since since I actually wrote that bit um, but if you think about it I mean the first digital watches which were um, well, you, I mean you, you look at um, you look at a regular watch with hands and um, and you've got a pie chart you remember the time when we used to get very excited about pie charts being the, the thing that computers did for us? <gasps> PIE CHARTS! <laughs> but at the same time we were getting terribly excited about pie charts and what they could do for our understanding of the world. We were saying, we don't want pie charts on our wrists. That's old-fashioned technology. No, what we want is not something you just glance at and see what the time is. We want something that you've got to go into a dark corner and put down your suitcase and press a button in order to read. Oh, it's 11:43. Now, what is how many? How long is that before 12 o'clock? Um, and, and this was progress. But um, but you see, the great—I mean, the great thing about human beings. I mean, uh, I mean, while you make fun of it. Uh, is not only that we invent stuff that's new and better and, uh, and, and and does things better, but even stuff that works perfectly well, we can't leave well enough alone. And it's really it, it is it is the most sort of charming and, and the delightful aspect of human beings that we keep on inventing things that we've already got right once. Um, I mean, like you know, bathroom faucets. I mean, it's very very simple. You turn it on, the water comes out. You turn it off, the water stops. Um, and, and we kind of got the hang of that that works, but it's amazing. You know you go into a sort of um, You know a hotel lobby or an airport and you approach the um basin with a certain amount of sort of anxiety you know, okay, what's um, What do I do do I turn something do I push something do I pull something do I knee it? Uh, do I just have to sort of be near it? Um, and once it started to, once the water started to flow because it's picked up some sort of brainwave energy from me or whatever, um, so how do I, now how do I stop it? Is it my job to stop it? Uh, will it stop itself? I mean, um, I, I think we've got the it down okay. I just think, but it, you know, it's, I, I just think it's wonderful that we just sort of keep on inventing it even though it works perfectly well because it's the way of it's the way of getting ourselves off local maximums, isn't it? (laughs) Um, I think that's all I have to say there. (laughs) (laughs)